Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week, George Eaton will be reporting from Edinburgh on the fallout from the Scottish independence referendum. Then I'll be talking to John Ellidge and Philip Morn about whether or not English regions might ask for more powers. And finally, Fiona Rutherford, Ian Stebman and I will talk about the private companies that want to take humans into space. I'm Caroline Crampton, the New Statesman's web editor, and I'm talking to George Eaton, our political editor, who is up in Edinburgh, having been up all night covering the Scottish referendum result. So, hello, George. Hello. So, George, just before we get into some of the issues that have come out of this, just summarise what happened overnight for us. So, in the end, it was a a comfortable win for no. It was um, 55-45. We knew the results uh, before they'd before they finished counting, um, it was it was over for for yes. Um, you could see in Salmon's concession speech that he was disappointed that the momentum they seemed to have at one point when they briefly went ahead uh, didn't carry through. Uh, they lost by more than the final poll suggested. Uh, it does seem as if there was a Shino effect where um, people weren't prepared to tell pollsters that they were going to vote no, but were prepared to vote no in the privacy of the ballot box. Mm. Um, and the yes side, although they took Dundee and Glasgow, they had um, some quite disappointing results. What the nationalists I spoke to here were really hoping for was a big surge in working class support from the, um, from the, from the poorer states, people who don't normally vote in, in elections. And they were hoping that would um, carry them to victory or at least to a, to a close defeat. And, um, that didn't materialise in the way they hoped. Is there any sense of why that ha- didn't happen? Not that I've picked up. Um, obviously, people will be picking over the numbers for days now. Um, I think in part it's because we have to remember that for years, support for independence was rigidly stuck at about a third. Mm, yeah. And so there was an element of double counting here where they'd already had an uplift to the mid 40s, even the high 40s in the polls. And they were still saying, we'll get a lot of um, the missing million, we'll get uh, new voters, people who don't normally vote, and they'll take us beyond 50. 
Um, well, they'd already taken them to the 40s, so they, there weren't as many left as they thought. And the hope was as well, because uh, 16 and 17-year-olds were able to vote in this mm. referendum. I think the hope there was that young people would vote for the first time and they'd vote for positive change, was the message from the campaign. Yes, and actually they proved to be um, more conservative than the, uh, than the yes side hoped. Um, so for those reasons, I think um, it looks... After the panic you've had at Westminster in the last few weeks, on paper it's quite a comfortable win. The no vote tops two million, and um, they got a double-digit win. And yet, just listening to Alex Salmon's concession speech this morning and Alistair Darling and David Cameron's statements, that isn't quite how it felt. Uh, Alex Salmon, although he lost and he accepted that very graciously, he was still talking about, you know, these are, these are our demands and this is what we want to see happen. Yeah. Absolutely. So he will extract a price for this defeat um, and simply for their own um, standing and issues of trust. Uh, all of the party leaders have to stick rigidly to the uh, timetable they've agreed now. Um, and I don't doubt I don't doubt that they will. I think the danger actually is that um, constitutional change is seen as a panacea when I think actually the um, alienation that has led some to vote for the breakup of what is a very successful union um, is much deeper than that. It has economic and social roots. Um, I don't think actually that many Scots are uh, overwhelmed by the uh, potential of Devo Max. I think they want something far more profound than that. There's a Yes, there was a symbolic message to the independence campaign that's now just sort of fizzled out. That's not on offer anymore. Yes. So, as well as uh, reactions from the, the leaders of the various campaigns in Scotland, we also had uh, David Cameron and Ed Miliband, as you say, laying out this, what sounded to me, very ambitious timetable, given that mm. issues like the West Lothian question have uh, trickled on and on for decades now, suggesting that we could have legislation by the end of the year. Seems unrealistic? Yes, well, it, it, normally it would be unrealistic, but... We're in such extraordinary circumstances here. The Union, in many ways, has had a near-death experience. I think they will probably find a way to, um, to, to get it through, but Cameron's played a very political card by instantly gripping the English question, um, which everyone expected him to do. Um, obviously, uh, Tories have been talking about this for a while. Cameron couldn't really address it explicitly until after the vote. And... Um, in some ways, it's an attempt to solve a genuine constitutional anomaly. So the West Lothian question, of course, uh, was first posed by Labour MP Tams Ayel. Um, it is the practice whereby you can have non-English MPs voting on English laws that don't affect their constituents. Um, it's one academics and so on have wrangled with for, for decades. But there is a very political dimension to it in that, obviously, Labour has far more Scottish and Welsh MPs than the Tories, and a lot of the, a lot of Conservatives recognise the potential to shackle a future Labour government by making it impossible for it to pass um, English legislation in the House if it doesn't have a majority of English MPs. And you wrote on the New Statesman website this morning that it could have, for a Labour government, it could effectively hand a permanent veto to yeah. the Conservatives, and so everything from minor legislation right up to budgets and mm. big important acts would then be in jeopardy. Absolutely, and what was interesting about Cameron's statement is that he didn't just 
refer to the powers that the Scottish Parliament has had since it was created over education and health, for instance. He also referred to tax, to welfare, um, the real meat of government. And um, I know shadow cabinet ministers, particularly Ed Balls, are very nervous about this. And um, that's one reason why they were quite worried about the um, blank check that Scotland seemed to have been given in uh, terms of devolution because they knew that would mean the English question comes up again and uh, it's very difficult for Labour now to um, argue against English votes for English laws without being seen as the anti-English party and the Tories are well aware that there's been an upsurge in English identity um, in recent years for, for a variety of reasons and they see that as a, as a political um, trend that they can mine. And there's also of course when it comes to English identity, the issue of UKIP. Nigel Farage has mm. been all over the airwaves this morning saying that he's now campaigning for fairness for English taxpayers and trying to position himself as, as the voice of the sort of the silent English majority or something, um, which presumably is f further worrying for Labour, who are already uh, concerned about the way UKIP is eating into their vote in some places. Yes, I think um, there is a real danger for... Miliband that he's the opposition leader he is meant to embody change change is the word he was constantly using in his uh, mm. reaction speech today um, but whenever the voters have a chance to um, vote for an anti-government party that isn't Labour they seem to take it so you could won the European elections you had George Galloway win in Bradford uh, the Greens are eating into Labour's votes um, and that means that uh, there's a chance Labour won't win in, in 2015, or that they'll be the largest party, but it will be a very weakened, uh, potentially unpopular government. Um, so then now, of course, we're, we're coming up to Labour conference, which has been an afterthought until, until now. But that is the big task for Miliband in his conference speeches, to somehow reclaim that insurgent mantle um, and to be seen as uh, an agent of change. Uh, rather than as part of the Westminster elite, as part of the problem rather than the solution. Well, with, as you say, with Labour conference this week and Miliband's speech forthcoming, it couldn't be a more crucial time. So we look forward to your reports, George. Thank you very much. Thank you. One of the major consequences of the Scottish independence debate has been greater calls by the English regions for more powers. It was widely regarded that the devolution agenda had stalled when the North East Assembly was rejected in 2004. I'm joined by John Elledge and Philip Maughan to talk about what might happen now in the future about the regions getting more power. John, first of all, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Did I get the wrong date for the North East Assembly? I just suddenly thought... Was it 2004, 2005? I think it was 2004, but okay. as, as a confirmed southerner, I'm probably not the one to ask. So. Okay, Phil, you're from the north. Uh, yeah, it was when I was doing my A-levels. So, um, when did was, you do your A-levels? That's an easier uh, question for you than anyone else. It was 2004, Yeah, okay, that's good. Yeah. So we, we cleared that up. Okay, so tell me your memory of, of what, what happened then. Um, a lot of people were very grumpy and cynical. Um, I think there is a great, um, a great desire for for representation in the northeast, particularly. Um, you know, throughout Scotland, there's been nothing but kind of murmurings of, you know, well, they do pretty bloody well comparison to us. Mm. Um, but the the package that was offered was was totally uh, insubstantial. I think that it just looked like there was going to be 
very little change, a whole new level of, of uh, bureaucracy kind of added. And that was sort of the line that went around at the time. Um, and people just didn't think it was the right way to go about things. But I don't think that, um, I don't think that there, is, there, there was necessarily a kind of uh, dismissal of, of even the idea of assemblies. I just think it was, that it was bad timing. I mean, a very popular Labour government at the time as well needs to be added. And, you know, the North East very Labour friendly. I think that is a really interesting point. So James Ball over at The Guardian did some analysis of the number of times that Scotland was mentioned. You know, it was mentioned more than 2,000 times in London-based national newspapers in between 8th and 15th of September. In that same amount of time, Yorkshire, which has got a population, I found out, the same size as Scotland. It's got an economy twice the size of Wales. Uh, if it competed in the last Olympics as a separate country, it would have come twelfth in the medals table. Yeah, everyone was saying that at the time. Everyone <laughs> <laughs> from Yorkshire. Oh, sorry, yeah, by that I mean, yeah, everyone. Yeah. Um, and yet, there were about five hundred mentions uh, of Yorkshire. So there is a point that when we talk about how overwhelming dominant England is within the current union, actually, what we tend to mean is London and, and the South East. And actually, Wales has got more self determination than an English region. But John, you wrote a very Eeyore-ish piece uh, for City Metric about why devolution never works, essentially because we, apart from Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, we don't have such clearly defined regions that you can kind of assign power specifically to them. Yeah, I mean, the difficulty you quickly run into is that if if you start talking about the idea of a federal UK, you think of the four countries. The problem being that England is a whole order of magnitude bigger and more populous than than any of the others. So, you know, an English parliament would pretty much just replicate the UK parliament with some of the bits cut off. And you know, the idea of English only votes in the House of Commons quickly runs into all sorts of practical issues, such as, you know, what, how do you define an English only matter? And, and also the fact that there is a, a non-insignificant chance that you would end up with a UK government which doesn't have enough votes to get any of its English legislation through. So you move on to the idea of regional representation, at which point you run headlong into the idea that, you know, Yorkshire is, is quite a good example of a region that does have a very well-defined identity and a big population. And you can do the same. Well, with except North- I found out from the Yorkshire First mm. website that they want to claim two counties from Lincolnshire as well. That's the the, the bit of Sumber, uh, Humberside south of the River Humber, I think, which is kind of very close. And what's the logic there? Because there's a pretty big river. Um, it's quite a good marker. Of there's a pretty big bridge. Humber Bridge, great bridge. But it's but this is actually a good point. I mean, it's it, that that it's rampant area. imperialism from Yorkshire. <laughs> I think that's what, what it is. The same thing has happened with the Wessex Regional mm. Party, which used to use Thomas Hardy's old definition of Wessex. Mm. It now also wants Oxfordshire and oh, I can't remember what it's another Gloucestershire. I think. Pre, yeah, Gloucestershire. Oh. So basically, it's everybody decides their region gets to be quite big. They get start getting grandiose. The Yorkshire Napoleon is, and probably you know, even on, on the fringes of Yorkshire is where they're most ardently Yorkshire. So I'm from Middlesbrough, which is uh, actually sort straddles the T's and therefore if you're on the north side you're from County Durham if you're from the south side you're from North Yorkshire and so along that fringe the northern fringe on the 1st of August Yorkshire Day ladies and gentlemen the flags are out it's like Northern Ireland it's what, the, like the Orange Day marches yeah, what, what happens on Yorkshire Day sorry to... scones and that but I mean <laughs> everyone puts out you know the kind of white rows outside their kind of house. and there are nice little kind of you know chutneys and nice little little farmers markets and things you know I mean it's just a kind of celebration of, it's, it's a rural life I mean Yorkshire's sort of known I've never felt more oppressed. There is no Midlands Day. But Yorkshire's not the same thing. As, it's not a geographical region in that sense. It's a county. I mean, it's got, his, yeah. it's got history reaches. Longer this is, this the is exactly the point, though. There is absolutely no way of breaking down England into kind of roughly equal regions that you could devolve power to, where everyone kind of recognises these things as, you know, a part of their identity. 
I think the problem is we do start talking about this debate in terms of identity when that's actually a bit of a red herring. We should be talking about power. The reason why all this is the big. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Transport funding, for example, goes to London. is because somewhere in the Treasury there is an economic model which works out the kind of return on any investment. And because London is bigger and richer and there are a lot of bankers here, if you build another railway line in London... It, it looks like a good investment. You can make a lot of money out of this in terms of your kind of future economic return. Um, but you can't make the same case for transport investment in Bradford or, or Birmingham. There is no Birmingham tube. Well, this is exactly what we've seen with the rail franchises, mm. which is that everybody wants to run London to Manchester, London to Birmingham. Nobody wants to run the intercity service that runs through Chipping, Sodbury. Or, you know, and there's still no, I mean, loads of places still don't have a, a railway line. I was talking to somebody from, um, who's campaigning for a Cornish assembly and he said, well, the thing is when they, when, when we had the big storms at the beginning of the year, people talked about the main railway line between London and Cornwall being down. It was the only railway line. Mm-hmm. You know, Cornwall doesn't have a motorway. It's very hard to get from South Wales to North Wales. Uh, trying to do that on public transport, I think would probably take you about 15 hours. I think you have to go by Birmingham or something ridiculous. But the, the, the point is the Treasury is never going to look at the maths and think, right, there's a really good investment to make in building another line to Cornwall. Some kind of Cornish assembly, if it could scrape the money together, probably would see that as a good investment. It would mean that suddenly this infrastructure was not competing with whatever the big project from London was. That, I think, is the real case for devolution. But nobody's willing to make it because you quickly run into sort of hatred of, of the entire political class and, and all these identity problems. But about billions. About Sir John, you know, editor of City Metric. What do you think about city mayors? Um, do they attract this kind of investment business to cities? Are they good spokespeople for the cities? And it, it, it depends on how you do it. I mean, if you look at like the, the, the American mayoral system... It, or the, or the French mayor which gives a background which is that own. lots of people were offered the chance for elected mayors a few years ago mm. and most of pretty much everybody turned them down so people didn't want them is the background and I, I think in London the, the position of mayor has kind of been a success but it's not actually that powerful a position considering it's you know, elected by a single constituency of 8 million people um, the reason it attracts these kind of flamboyant slightly outsider political characters is because it functions more as kind of, you know, a, a bully pulpit or a stage. It's somewhere you can kind of make the case for investing in London, but you still don't have massive amounts of fiscal power. Do you think own. it's more like being a governor of an American state then? No, because governors also actually have quite a yeah, lot of political do, power. It's it's almost more sort of a symbolic than that, I think. You're a fundraiser of sorts, a sort of kind of, uh, you know, you're, a, you're the public relations man. We, yeah, I mean, to a certain extent. I mean, that's how Ken, Ken Livingstone got a lot done by going round to the banging the drum for investing in London. 
Boris Johnson has kind of followed the same line in a sort of slightly Chipping different way. Tripping over the but, drum, yeah. kind of <laughs> <laughs> drawing a smiley face on it. Yeah, but I mean, where, where, where there have been kind of big transport projects that, that have happened under the Johnson administration, it's largely been where he could personally go out and sort of persuade, you know, the Emirates or whoever it is, that this is something worth investing in. It's almost more a sort of, you know, chairman of the board role than a sort of presidential style one, I think. I thought, um, so Gordon Brown's been having something of a renaissance and he was having um, a great, he gave a great kind of spiel on on the program with Dimbleby, David Dimbleby, where he was talking about exactly the problem of, of regionalisation, which is that different bits of public spending go to different parts of the country. So there are some parts of the country which need far more spending in terms of unemployment benefits, for example. London soaks up hugely disproportionately amount of housing benefit mm. because London housing is so uh, so so actually, although it looks very unfair on the surface, surface that some people get more money than others, actually it's about what each particular region needs and that sort of evens itself out and I think there is a big question actually some powers you almost don't want to devolve down if you think about the trouble that this the coalition has had over planning for example devolving planning permission down means essentially no one's going to build anything because no one wants to Mm. all the incentives there are to maintain the land that you've got maintain the house prices for the people who've already got houses nobody wants a big giant estate built on them or huge swathes of concrete over the countryside or whatever however you want to frame it those things have to be centrally imposed the same thing with the problem with hs2 that's going through the constituencies of a lot of disgruntled tories like michael fabricant and actually if that would that decision were taken at the local level no one would ever want to make themselves that unpopular even if the overall benefit for the country is actually demonstrable it's the tragedy of the commons isn't it it's you know, the, the the benefits are widely spread whereas the costs are concentrated in incredibly small number of people all of whom vote for the same politicians um yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the, the housing point is a very interesting one. There was a depressing moment the other week where a, a report came out backed by the, the centre-right think tank policy exchange, um, where some, which had given out an award to the best idea for a garden city. And the, the winner was this plan for this fictitious city called Uxchester. But basically it amounted to doubling the size of Oxford. And they got quite detailed plans of how you do it, just to sort of maintain green space and ensure it was built around public transport and so on. And, you know, as these things go, it was quite an impressive plan. Um, and Brandon Lewis, the housing minister, pretty much instantaneously put out a report just absolutely trashing it and saying, you know, this is never, this kind of thing is never going to happen. We're not going to f- make Labour's mistakes of imposing housing top down. It's going to be bottom up from the communities. And you quickly run into the problem that you've just described, Helen, which is that... If you've got a house, you don't want You don't want more house houses next door. Yeah, you, you'd much rather keep your view of the Cotswolds than get a nice view of the housing estate instead. And if, if we're reliant on communities to sort of suddenly decide to build houses, then we are never, ever going to fix this problem. Without wanting to sound like a sort of old-fashioned statist, I really think this is something that has to come from Westminster. Well, on that slightly depressing but i'm impressed we talked about devolution for so long who knew maybe we'll make it a regular feature i keep uh, telling people devolution is really interesting but then they kind of walk away from me and don't talk to me again so it's, the, it's the new independence come back and talk about the eu again they say, John. <laughs> <laughs> all is forgiven i'll say thank you very much to philip morn and john ellidge From the English regions to outer space. Uh, I'm joined by Ian Steadman and Fiona Rutherford to talk about NASA's new contracts for private companies to take astronauts to the International Space Station. 
Ian, um, we know that private companies have done pretty well so far. The SpaceX Dragon has been ferrying supplies to the ISS. What's the what's the new update on that? Well, um, this is part of a kind of larger international thing where private companies are increasingly being trusted with space exploration. Um, so the, the history to this is kind of, you know, during the Cold War, it was all about um, very centralised. You had the Americans and you had the Russians and they were kind of spending a lot of their own state uh, budgets on sending people to space and going to the moon and all those famous things. But um, since then... Governments don't really like spending as much money on space travel. But the private sector has realised that there's a lot of potential for earning money from up there. Um, in the future, people talk about things like asteroid mining and, and building bases on the moon, which is quite exciting. But in, until we get there, we need to sort of develop a private space industry. And that's kind of what's happened, where NASA has started to outsource contracts to private companies to do things like... Uh, basically send supplies up to the International Space Station. And now what the contract that's just been announced this week is, is to send astronauts up to the ISS. So correct me if I'm wrong, but SpaceX is uh, Elon Musk's company. Yes, the famous Elon Musk. So of... Elon Musk found was uh, involved in the founding of eBay. Oh, no, uh, PayPal, sorry. PayPal, yes. He's involved in the founding of PayPal. Made the online a huge amount of money from payment PayPal. service. Uh, he then also is involved with Tesla, which does electric cars. Yeah. And he famously said, I want to die on Mars just yes. not on impact. He's, he's also behind uh, the, the idea to send people to Mars for the first Martian colony. Um, he's a very ambitious man who has, uh, like, uh, he's inspired I the Iron Man character in modern times. He's Tony Stark. Well, because Tony Stark predates Elon Musk being born, as far as I'm aware. Yeah. But the more modern incarnation, Robert Downey Jr. Robert Jr. in the films, for instance. Suave yeah. Billionaire. Um, yeah, so SpaceX is his company, but um, Boeing, which is, you know, Boeing is a massive company, but they've also uh, earned these contracts that are um, like $7 billion. And it's just test flights at the moment. Um, and then possibly up to half a dozen actual flights of astronauts up to the ISS. But SpaceX has already been sending up supply missions to the ISS. They've um, got this Dragon spacecraft, which is their own rocket that they've developed. They do test flights in the, in the, um, in the Nevada desert. Um, they are doing quite a good job. I'm excited about this. One of the things I think that's really interesting about Boeing um, and, and Airbus as well, I think that they give them de planes deliberately really boring names. Yeah. The other thing that's about Airbus is that you could have called it like the Falcon or something like that, but no, you would no. deliberately want it to be really boring. It doesn't as possible. look like a Falcon either. A Falcon implies it's quite sort of fast and graceful, but the Airbus A380 is more like a Bus. whale with wings. You know, yeah. it's, it's huge. So I wonder when they start taking people up to space if they'll stop. Ooh. If SpaceX will drop names like the Dragon and it'll be called like the sort of tram. Space yeah, tram. the um, space like airport shuttle or something really yeah, just boring. Something really nice and, and kind of like, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think they're calling it the space taxis. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. are. They're calling them space taxis actually. So see, yeah. that's entirely yeah. proves my theory that it's going to be as boring as possible. Um, I mean, Fiona, do you think this marks a, a new, exciting era, or do you think we're really going to need you know the kind of huge amounts of cash that only governments can stump up? Um. I think it is quite exciting, but I think the reason why America's doing it is to get away from relying on Russia because of the events in Ukraine. Yeah, that's. I mean, there was a, there was a, a Russian cosmonaut and an, on the ISS, wasn't there at the yes. time of um, the Ukraine incursion, which must have been because they so they speak uh, English and Russian. Yeah, and everyone has to learn, and they launched from Kazakhstan and Star City. The current crew on the ISS is. Three Russians, two Americans, and I think there's one uh, Japanese guy who the I Japanese think must be kind of like, Yeah, <laughs> this is he's, uncomfortable. He's the commander, actually. So his job will be keeping them all from fighting like children, I guess. But um, there is that weird 
reintroduction of the political element to space because at the moment you can only get up there in the Russian Soyuz. Yeah, and, and they charge a lot of money. They charge a huge <laughs> amount of money for it. Um, and it's really sad because it's much smaller than the American um, mm-hmm. Challenger and things that they were using that. So there was a whole raft of astronauts who were like six foot one, six foot two. And suddenly that was it. Well, you know, sorry about your 20 years of training, lads, but you Ian, you would no longer be allowed to go up to space. <laughs> yeah. tall, no, I right? absolutely wouldn't. Um, uh, yeah. I get motion sick on the cross <laughs> ferry, so I'm also ruled out from yeah. this. Um, yeah, so this is, I mean, the Americans will really want to avoid having to rely on the Russians, mm. particularly if the Russians have also, um, they've said that they might detach, we talked about this in a previous podcast a few months ago, they want to detach their bits of the ISS from the ISS in 2020, so they can use it as the core of their own new space station, that's not sort of like everyone else's, because at the moment the ISS is, you know, lots of bits from different countries all bolted together. But the core component that has the life support and everything is Russian. And they basically said they want to take their ball and play by themselves and go home. So um, they're going to let all the American spits fall into the atmosphere and burn up. And they can go create their own new um, space station. So there is that weird, like, political thing that's come back into space travel that is fascinating because that was the defining metaphor of the this idea of the space race and then you talked to i interviewed chris hadfield who's a canadian astronaut um and he said you know, one of the things that is now different is that it's now very much about cooperation so not only is it about cooperation from all the different nations that you know send up people but also actually the whole ethos of what it takes to be an astronaut has changed because they're flying such longer missions you know, the original, the kind of the right stuff era, these were test pilots. These were kind of really scary, you know, Tom Cruise and Top Gun kind of, you know, real alpha males. And actually, that's not what they want anymore. Because if you're stuck, you know, I mean, I think Tom Cruise's character in Top Gun, if you had been stuck <laughs> in a tiny tin can with him for like 18 months, there mm. would be an insurrection. So everybody's much more kind of chilled out in space now. And actually, mm. they were talking about the Mars mission. They're thinking that what they want is to have is a is a middle aged married couple. Yeah. On the basis that they they'd be used to sort of pottering around, spending a lot of time with each other and wouldn't be at each other's throats. Mm. But I think that's quite sad because that that to me is a much more chilled out version of yeah. space. It Takes is. But that's a, that's kind of what happened. That that's like colonization and, and exploration has always been like that. There's the exciting first wave of like we've discovered something new and now it's to the boring bit of sort of building things and and stuff which is exciting in its own way you know building a moon base or building a base on mars is going to be exciting it's just that the people doing it might not necessarily be the most exciting individuals i've been on the moon this weekend on destiny the (laughs) computer game and i have to tell you that it's really rubbish and oh, is it? It's basically just like Halo. Ah, oh, see, I haven't, I haven't played, I haven't got the uh, the the latest consoles to play it on. Unfortunately, yeah. well, I'm a PC so. gamer, but um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I have had a lot. I, my my Twitter timeline is just people talking about it. It's so. yeah. Well, I'm sure the listeners of the podcast don't need to hear me banging on about my problems with yeah you know, other things that I've been watching on TV, think meals that I've cooked, etc. So we'll probably leave it there and say thank you very much to Fiona and Ian. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Our theme tune is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons, and our producer is Philip Morne.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.